MNK Talk YA now presents Ember Queen Part 1 of the Ash Princess Trilogy by Laura Sebastian. MK Talk YA. I'm Marissa Snyder. And I'm Kitty Bradford. And this is our Young Adult Fiction Podcast. And this week we started the third book in the Ash Princess Trilogy. This book was called Ember Queen, and we read up to the chapter entitled Ghost. Which means we only have half a book left in this whole series. I'm kind of sad. I know. And for a trilogy, it's like still holding my interest. Yeah, I was going to say, I'm actually really happy with the pacing, and I don't know that we have more than about half a book left of, I mean, you know, I'm always curious to know how things It feels about right. In, but I'm hoping that we wrap things up and feel good about the ending, because I think the pacing overall has been really good. Like you said, for a trilogy, I didn't feel that, like, middle book syndrome Mm-mm. too much. I haven't felt like we're repeating ourselves too much, even though Soren is constantly being captured by somebody. Mm-hmm. Um, and... <laughs> Yeah. I guess the one thing that I am finding a little tedious is um, there's a lot of strategy in this book. Like, which mine do we go to? How do we deal with the prisoner exchange? Like, how, like, there was a lot of planning that I think we saw that I'm not sure if we needed to. Yeah. I mean, I guess we needed to because otherwise it would have been hard to, like, get from A to B. But I didn't enjoy it as much as I enjoyed some of the other stuff in this series. That's fair. I guess that is something I tend to like is like Mm. the political scheming and strategizing and even especially with this group because we have this group of rebels who've kind of come together against a common enemy but they really aren't aligned otherwise in a lot of ways. So I loved when Crest tries to tear them apart by sending a messenger who basically offers one group of people pardon or I, peace. I what, yeah. Pe- yeah. Clemency. Yeah. Like if they come join her side, they won't be like killed and all this stuff. And I love that because it's so true. Even though they all kind of hate the clocks, see it cloaks, whatever they're called. Um, yeah. Uh, even though they they all hate this one group of people, they're sort of there for these different reasons and have different motivations and they don't all trust each other and they have their own kind of grievances amongst each other. And I sort of loved seeing that play out a little bit because mm-hmm. I think it would have been almost too rosy colored glasses to just have everyone be like, yeah, like, let's get them. I don't know. Right. No, that's true. It's sort of tedious, but it also feels... I think the thing that I'm getting... that. I originally was like really into the magic and the different ways it works, but for some reason now that we have Theo with Theo's gone into the mine and come back out, for some reason like the magic part is sort of wearing on me a little bit. Mm. I, I don't know if it's just because I still don't fully understand it or if I'm just kind of mad that her powers are growing or what, or maybe it's because her and Blaze have the same conversation every five minutes. I think that's it. But that part of it, I think, is what's wearing on me more than the, like, political strategy. Like, how do we get set up for... I don't know. I think also because their plans don't always work. I like that they... Like, I know what they've tried to do and then why it doesn't work. 
Yeah, and I think you're right. I think the whole thing with Blaze, like, not being able to control his power is really getting a little bit old. Like, I kind of just want to see how it ends one way or another. Um, it's just, like, it does feel like the same conversation over and over, and it's the main point of contention between them now, and I'm just like, okay, clearly something's going to happen, so I'm, I'm ready to find out what it is. Yeah, especially because... I feel like we have seen every other permutation of it. We've seen him use his power and it, like, saved the day, but him lose control. And at the last minute, we stopped killing him. We've seen us refuse to let him use his power and him, like, be driven by... I don't even know. Like, what happened? I guess, should we back up a little bit? So, sure. where, where did this book start? We... Theo emerged from the mine, which... Right was both interesting and like I said I think that's actually part of me loved her as this damsel in distress and the more power she gains from like a magical unexplained way I'm almost I almost don't love it because I sort of liked how she was lived in this magical world but didn't have magic herself and had to like rely on her relationships and brain and some of this other stuff but I guess we'll see how it all plays out yeah I agree with that and I also feel like um the whole idea of like power living in people's blood is kind of I mean it, it makes sense but I'm not thrilled with that whole idea mm-hmm. and that's becoming like a pretty big plot point well now what now there's lots of different things in people's blood because we have <laughs> I know so we found out that when Theo was given the poison from Cress she did not actually find the mine source. She learned that her blood was essentially the poison, but just a little bit distilled. Is that accurate? Diluted, yeah. Mm-hmm. And so Theo actually ingested her blood. And we've now learned that Cress has been going around trying to like create a little mini army of female poison survivors and just like giving all these different women um her blood and a lot of them die but a few of them maybe are surviving and creating sort of a group of people but anyways so that that part is happening Mm -hmm. and I don't hate the idea of that of creating an army of women who are faithful to Cress especially because she's in a patriarchal society that is not supporting her as queen Mm -hmm. but uh the method is all wrong (laughs) Clearly. Yeah. I think the blood part is kind of grossing me out. I actually do. I love that part because you also think of Cress. She grew up mostly without her mom. She's been a pawn in all these different games in a lot of ways. Like between, I mean, she had a lot of freedom and a lot of independence, but I also think she was a pawn for her father. And mm-hmm. the, like, just it, like you said, it's a patriarchal society and, and whatnot. And she's finally finding her power and also I think it's also like a thing about loneliness right she's trying she lost her best friend yep and she's trying to find people who she can relate to and like empower these like I I, I think there's and multiple layers on. there and I love that aspect but I agree the like drinking her blood thing is a little bit weird and then also knowing that it kills like the majority of people I'm kind of curious about how she's convincing people to do it I guess we saw a glimpse of it when she yeah I, th- I think, too, it's kind of interesting because both Cress and Theo have this power, right? So, like, mm-hmm. Theo could technically give her blood to someone and create an army, too. And I think it's just, it really does put a nice 
kind of parallel to both of these characters because, you know, they were so close and they did consider themselves heart sisters or whatever. And now they both have this very similar power, but we have Cress who's just using it left and right to to manipulate people and then Theo who refuses to use it at all. Because someone did mention to her, like, hey, you could use your power and give someone your blood and make them stronger. And she was like, I absolutely will not do that. Yeah. Yeah, that's a good point. And it is funny, too, because they used that phrase heart sister before. And now they literally are, like, connected in a much deeper way, biologically or whatever. I don't know the proper term, but, like, they're... So, Cress doesn't know that Theo's actually still alive. She thinks she's dead and haunting her, but they Mm -hmm. are, like, inner acting with each other in their like subconscious dream world yeah there's like a bridge between their minds now yeah and i'm wondering is that because she drank her blood like to all the women who crest quote-unquote created with her blood magic do they also have the bridge with crest's mind that's a good question i guess my assumption was yes but i hadn't really thought about it in terms of yeah does she just have like little parties in her dream world with like all of her friends maybe (laughs) Or is she using it to control them somehow? Yeah, I don't know. That's it. And it's also interesting because we were seeing Cress in Theo's dreams in book two, but it was like truly just her imagination. Yeah. Yeah. Just nightmares she was having because of how close they were in her betrayal and being fearful and all this stuff. So it it is kind of interesting to see. I feel like the changes that she drank her blood. But I guess it could be any number of other magical things in this world right now. Um, and speaking of Cress, we meet um, a new character in this half of the book who yes. we both really wanted to meet. And I'm glad that happened. So we met... I kind of forgot about it, though, because it was book one that we wanted to meet her. Oh, you think it's like, do you feel like it's too late? No, I'm glad. I just like, even though I sort of wanted it and was hoping that it would come and like predicted it in the sense that when she first came up, I was like, oh, we're going to see her later. I'd sort of forgotten about her. So I was still like pleasantly surprised. Gotcha. So yeah, we meet Chris's mom, whose name is Brigitta. Brigitta. I don't know how to pronounce that. And we get a little bit of her background. So she was in love with this guy named Jean. So was she in love with him? That was unclear to me. So she was, but the thing that we clarified was the entire time Cress thought that her mother left her just because she was in love with this guy and wanted to run away from her father, the Theon. But we learn instead that Brigitte's lover was actually being forced to create um, a substance that would essentially give the wielder mind control powers over whoever ingested this new substance. It reminds me, not even of, like, mind control. It sort of reminds me of the fairy world a little bit. But, like, the, yeah, like... Yeah, like, glamouring. Almost, like, puppeteering or something where they, like, don't even... It's not like they want to do other things and they can't. It's like, it, like, overwrites their... They're, like, zomb- They're like robots. They're, like... They're glamoured, yeah. Yeah, they're glamoured. Right, and so the reason that Cress's mother left her was because she knew she couldn't let this power end up in the hands of the Kaiserin, and she knew that's what would happen if she stayed. So... Or or even in the hands of her husband. And I think that's something that we also yeah. need to keep in mind because, yes, he was a good father from what we know, but he was not a good man. And we know that already. And at all, it doesn't sound like he was necessarily even a good husband. So, no, no, for sure. And so I think, I don't think Chris knows that yet, but I think that might 
play a part in, you know, how how their interaction's going to go. I mean, just to know that she left her daughter for a very important cause. Well, and that was um, sort of, it'll be interesting to see how that plays out when it's revealed, because this was another thing where the blood kind of came into play, like right near the end of this first half, we realized that the thing that had been developed wasn't actually like a gas or, so I don't know exactly, but somehow it lives in her blood, right? Well, it leaves, it lives in her blood because we find out that Brigitte Cress's mother was the test subject for her husband. So he kind of tested out this new power on her. And because of that, she kind of holds this substance. It, it like lives in her blood. Yeah. But somehow she isn't mind controlled, which that does not make sense. I know. That's where I was kind of getting confused. And maybe we'll get more clarity as we, because that was like right at the end of this half sort of where we learn that piece but right but yeah so she's back in the hands of Cress and uh I'm I hope we see some of that interaction between her and her mom and not just hear about it secondhand because I'm so curious to see that such an interesting relationship Mm -hmm. we've and we've already seen some kind of interesting mother-daughter relationships with Theo and with Art and um whatnot but Cress has been has felt abandoned by her mother and now her mother is potentially the answer to this other thing where she wants power and just like I'm just so curious to see the influence her mom has on her if she can help turn her for good or if she just brings out her worst side or if they make any peace amongst themselves or what happens I agree that's probably the the thing I'm most excited to see like the whole thing with Blaze I'm kind of like over it <laughs> yeah so I, I mean if he uses his power and blows himself up okay I'm I'm starting to really think that Theo is gonna end up with Soren yeah I think Blaze is not long for the world sayonara berserk berserking off <laughs> Yeah, especially since like the, I think the thing that you were asking about earlier was like what happens this last time when he totally loses control and disobeys orders and tries to use his power. I thought it was confusing too because they try to make it sound like it was different from what happened before, but in my mind it was like kind of exactly the same. So he said that he didn't lose control of his gift. He was just so desperate to give into the temptation to use it that he lost control. And to me, I was like, isn't that the same? I know. I mean, it, it's a very fine line, I think. Yeah. And I think it's going to be really confusing to see how it plays out. Because to me, it means that he can't even decide to not use his gift anymore if he can't decide to not use his gift and right. reacts this way. Whereas before, at least he could decide to not use it. And if he used it, it would take over. So I think there is like a slight difference, but I don't understand how he can now make any, like to me, it means he's crossed like a point of no return. I agree. And, and But instead, he's like promising Theo, he's like, okay, I promise you I won't use my power anymore and I'm like dude you can't make that promise like clearly you can't control anything yeah it sounds like that's the exact thing that you can't do that's the only thing (laughs) yeah right so I'm just kind of like tired of playing (laughs) well and I think I want him to have his like moment of I want him to berserk properly or like find a way to no but I mean I think this is kind of what he wants and would be like fair to his character at this point I'm tired of waiting for it to happen and like the pros and cons and like convincing him not to like like I just want there to be a moment where he's like the one who can save the day but sacrifices himself and I just want that to happen and us all to move on and I think it will I think it will happen in this next half but it just needs to happen sooner rather than later because I like to your point in our yeah I'm tired of seeing it and I agree I think her and Soren it becomes a lot easier obviously if Blaze is out of the picture but they constantly talk about too how they're the only ones who sort of understand the darkest parts of each other and Mm -hmm. I think that that is 
A, I think that's important in a real relationship anyways, too. You need to be able to, like, be your worst self as well as your best self with someone. But I also think that that's something they're both wrestle with so much. And it would be hard for, like, even if Blaze somehow, even though Blaze knows her really well on growing up and some of this other stuff, if he can never relate to that side of her, I don't see their relationship ever being able to, like, compete. I totally agree. Yeah. Um... Okay, the other thing that we're seeing, which I think is kind of interesting. So um, Art, our friend Art, was talking to Theo about how after she comes out of the mine, she um, had like three memories return. Mm-hmm. And I thought this was kind of like an interesting piece, but I I mean, I, I just don't really see how it's necessary for like the plot moving forward. I think it's, it is interesting, but I don't really understand the purpose of it. So it's cool from like a, if it was like legend or lore or mythology in the world, I like, like it. But yeah, I agree. It's sort of distracting from the movement at this point, but it'll be interesting to see how it ends. Go on though. Yeah. And it came out of nowhere because it was like, okay, you're going to have three memories return and they're going to be like three tests. And like, in the first one, Theo, Theo's mother is like trying to get her to stay and she has to kind of like walk away from her. And then the second one, I thought the second one was going to be Impelio. And then it ended up being all these people. It was Impelio and it was... It was like making peace with... Elpis. Causing the death of others or something. Right. Yeah. Because like Hoya was there and the Archduke and basically... She tells them that their deaths were necessary and she sets them free. So it was like, I guess this test was like forgiving herself almost. So here's my biggest problem with it, I think. Up until this point when we've talked about mind madness and the magic and the influence on the minds, it's felt like it is something that if we like understood the biology and genetics and stuff, we could make sense of it. It felt Mm -hmm. like, you know, depending on, they didn't know exactly what, but something about different individuals react differently to the mind and the magic and whatnot. But then this new information makes it sound like it's almost like psychological, like a choice. Like, so does that mean the people who went mind mad, like failed one of their tests? Or does that mean, I don't know, something about it just like doesn't align well with how I was understanding the explanation for the magic and the mind madness before. And I'm kind of okay with either explanation, but they don't sit well together in my mind at this point. I agree completely. It feels like a, a disconnect. And that's where I think... I had been loving the magic in this world and felt like it had been explained well. And I think this book just sort of threw me for a loop. And to be fair, I think Theo's also trying to sort through it. So maybe we'll get clarity as she gets clarity. But I'm part of me is like, I don't think we needed this extra layer of confusion. I agree. It almost felt like we needed more material to like fill up a third book. So we're going to like add this wrench into the mix. And it was just kind of like, doesn't make sense. But honestly, we had a lot going on already. Yeah, <laughs> I, know. I know. I agree. Like I, I didn't think it was necessary. And now it would have made sense if it was like first it's her mother and then it's Impelio and then it's someone else. But like for, it's, for the first one to be just her mother and the second one be like everyone. I was like, well, what's the third test going to be? I bet it's going to be Blaze. Yeah. Now that I just said that. <laughs> and I also feel like we've like the analogy of it of her like choosing her country over all these other things is what I sort of mm-hmm. feel like keeps getting reiterated. But I also feel like she's been doing that by her choices and her actions in real life. So I almost feel like it's over. Like we don't need to keep reiterating this because she's already in my mind proven that she's capable of making those choices as a queen. In every instance 
where she has to make a decision between saving someone she loves or cho- or saving her country, she always chooses her country. She has yeah. never wavered on that ever. She didn't try and go save Soren. She sacrificed Elpis. Like that's yeah. a given. And so I know I'm kind of like, why do a why do people doubt her? B I'm glad that she wrestles with it. Like she has tr- like she yeah. even if she like comes to terms with I had to do that. But to your point, she's always made that choice. So it doesn't even like seem like a. I'm like yeah okay if you lay it out for her like you can either save all of your friends or your country she's gonna pick her country it's gonna be hard for her to decide and she's gonna feel guilty but she's gonna pick her country right and even blaze knows that like he calls her out on it and he's like everything i do is for you and everything you do is for your country and she's like okay but you can't hold that against me and he was like i don't like i i know i can't which is also bs though a little bit because i feel like blaze does not do everything for her but okay (laughs) and also he's not okay with it because he's always like sulking and you know upset with her about something i do think they're actually like exactly the same (laughs) (laughs) they're both very stubborn like yeah i they have like a brotherly sisterly i agree relationship that i would love to see survive but um but yeah i also okay i have mixed feelings about love triangles in general this one hasn't bothered me as much in a lot of ways because it hasn't actually come down to like a boy versus boy thing but then the other part of me is like it's kind of stupid that they haven't like had it like she keeps alternating like who she's spending the night with with them both around all the time but like sort of yeah and they haven't really come to fists fisticuffs over it and I don't necessarily want them to have a fight about it as much as I want them to be like hey can you just pick one of us I don't like Mm -hmm. part of me is like you can't I don't know it like seems weird that it hasn't been an issue at all given some of the choices she's made even though I'm also kind of glad that it hasn't been an issue because there's other bigger issues but I don't know yeah who needs that (laughs) (laughs) we also meet some new characters in this book so we meet I don't know how to pronounce this. M A I L E. Mali? Mali? Sure. Miley? Miley, maybe? Let's say Miley. So she's the daughter of Chief Capil of Victoria, and she's useless. She is a wet blanket. That's all she does. All she does is like poke holes in other people's plans, but doesn't come up with any good plans of her own. (laughs) Well, and I feel like what I've loved about this series so far is the background for all these secondary characters. And I feel like hers is a little bit slow in coming, but we have seen glimpses of it. Like we eventually realized that part of the reason why she is especially difficult with Eric is because she knows that he was part of the group that attacked her country. Totally. And then there was another thing too that I feel like we eventually got a bit of an explanation for but it's just been really slow to come and to your point she hasn't added any actual value for the most part and it's like okay why are you here what are you doing but I also kind of love it because I always think it's a little bit unbelievable that in books like this everyone is like brilliant and smart and like capable and like a great fighter and a great strategist and it's just like realistically if you have a group of this many people there's gonna be one or two of them who are just like not pulling their weight and are basically like annoying everyone else. Okay, especially because literally all of them except um the one old guy from the refugee camp and Dragon's Bane are like mm-hmm. under the age of 20, right? <laughs> exactly. Yes. So it's like it is very realistic that there would be a character like this and I'm almost kind of I'm like it's refreshing because I'm like yeah of course there would be someone who just like calls out problems and doesn't come up out with a solution because everyone has one of those people at work who they deal with all the time. Group project 101 yep. (laughs) And why would a revolution be any different yeah. 
That's fair. Yeah. But I am interested to learn like a little bit more about her character and I, I, I feel like she might end up doing something like she'll probably have the best idea that like saves the day just given the way books work. I think what I hope for her actually is not necessarily that she needs to save the day but I just wish she had a little bit more of a personality. Like I <laughs> wish she was like a little bit like snarkier or funnier or something just because it, it, it almost is like okay like she's wearing on everybody which I guess is a good thing. I've enjoyed when her and Art and Theo have been when Theo's been like yeah Art is just like this like if she really hated you she'd or you know some of those moments have been kind of like funny I don't know but but yeah she's just kind of a drag right now (laughs) (laughs) let me think what else oh okay so I really liked the whole disguise situation Mm -hmm. where they lured they basically disguised themselves first you disguised herself as crest to lure the stuckervarian ships into shore and then they destroy the entire fleet yep and then they disguise all of that shipwreck and disguise themselves again so that when it comes to the exchange that's happening so they are exchanging Cress's mother and uh Jean in exchange for control of the water mine and so and Soren and Eric which we which was kind of a, oh and yeah part of me loved it and part of me was like seriously now we just got them back but okay <laughs> well I was shocked that the whole thing worked in the first place because that moment when Cress is alone with Theo and Theo's disguise I was like oh crap like she's gonna see through this but she doesn't. So now Cress's mother and what's his name? Leia? Leias? Yeah, Leias, who's disguised as Jean, are now with um, the Calavaxians. And in exchange, um, Theo gets Soren and Eric back. And I was I was just shocked that all, that all of that worked. And I was also confused because I was like, how long do these disguise, like how long do they work? Like I was surprised that it held without Heron having to or whoever was doing the disguising without them like being somewhere in the vicinity and like how long do they last how do they reverse it I don't know I just had questions yeah well so I think that's part of why they did that mine because they the people who were there are the ones who had the ability to mask people so there was like a contingent of multiple people who had the ability and could be like placed throughout the camp I guess Mm -hmm. and it was art I think who it was the water Mm magic people but I was expecting there to be a hiccup even if it was overlooked by Cress and Co something that like we'd all be like oh my goodness they're gonna notice but maybe they didn't or someone like came up with a lie at the last minute I agree but the other thing that I sort of liked about it is why would Cress and that like how would they ever assume like it's almost such a crazy out there plan that if you're not looking for something to be wrong there was just enough to make I don't know like I'm rambling sorry like if it would be one thing if they had already been disguising themselves in various places or had any reason to suspect that something was off that there'd be like some kind of secondary check or like a, I was expecting like a code word or something like that that would get messed up Mm -hmm. or even like where's you know the name of the main guard who I know personally or something weird like that to happen yeah but at the same time there were some little things that were off like I think Theo said something like the one of the walls was missing technically yeah and so like the wind was blowing through but at the same time, yeah, why would Cress be like, oh, there's a draft? I bet that wall is missing and some, one of these water slaves is 
making it look like the walls really like that would be such a crazy leap given the world as they knew it and assuming that everyone's I don't know it's sort of like you see what you want to see right I guess so that's true I just am surprised that given everything we've learned about Cress and how flimsy the disguise was I'm surprised that Cress fell for it I guess yeah I think it's interesting because I don't think she had met the Stakravashians herself personally and that would have possibly changed it again I was expecting some kind of like code word or reference to something that they couldn't pull off or like Heron to Mm -hmm. not act like the prince well enough that was sort of interesting because Theo as the princess did a lot of the talking but in that Mm -hmm. society it would have been the prince who did most of the talking but again I think Cress sort of saw what she wanted to see because she was hoping to find a friend slash ally in the prince I don't know in the princess yeah yeah. so does this mean that prince Avarak and the princess are dead were they in the on the ships that they destroyed we don't know if the princess was on there or not for sure because I have no idea if she would have been sent and I actually don't know if we know if the prince was sent as well but regardless when that other king finds out he's not going to be happy oh he's going to be so mad yeah this is like the second group of ships that she's either (laughs) stolen or destroyed yeah oh and he was madder to begin with (laughs) yeah at some point even though he's not a war guy something's gonna give although that was most of his i don't know i'm still kind of confused but something's gonna happen with him. I am curious to see how, since in book two, we met all of these other countries' leaders, especially, and we saw their different motivations. Yeah. I am kind of curious, besides her allies, who else gets involved in this whole thing on the island? Which is almost why this other layer of, like, someone's blood that can control people and make them, like, mindless puppets. I'm sort of also like, did that need to happen? But I guess we'll see how it plays I know. out. Yeah, I agree. The other thing that scared me for a minute was Eric, because... I was very nervous whenever Crest first made the deal with Theo where she was like, um, I'm going to offer you guys clemency if you fight on my side, but it only applies to one country. And then Eric was like, I have to accept. And he, I really, really thought that he was like turning on them and was becoming a traitor. But we learned that he just went actually to spy and to try and free Soren, which was very brave, but um, did not go well at all. Yeah. And I do feel really bad for Eric now. I do too. And I agree. I agree. I did. I, I bought his reasons for leaving and being a traitor for the most part. I guess I didn't expect him to, like, I thought he was leaving to rescue Soren. I didn't necessarily imagine him, like, 100% committing to Cress and, like, fighting against the rest of the rebels. But part of me is like, okay, yeah, he went as a spy, but did he really go as a spy or did he just go but say, like, we can still be friends? I mean, because he didn't get them any information. He didn't do anything for them. No, he didn't do anything. He just... They, like, left with just enough, like, it's okay, we're still friends, so that he could come back. That's, like, all that happened. I don't know. Part of me, like, wished more... Well... I wish he had gotten at least some bit of information for them or, like, done something to, like, prove that he was still on their side while he was over there instead of just getting himself caught trying to free Soren. I mean, I think that in of itself is enough that he's on their side, right? Because, like, he did risk a lot. I mean, he was tortured. He lost his eye. Like, they sent the rest of his troops that he took to the mines or killed them. Like, he sacrificed essentially everything um, to free Soren. Yeah, and I guess he could have, like, revealed that she was still alive or something more about their plans, and he didn't. So, that's true. Yeah. 
But yeah, I think he's definitely. But from like a personal standpoint, like Theo also cares about Sora and would be like, yeah, thanks for trying to save him. And like, we're still good. But again, if you're thinking yeah. about some of the other allies and stuff, it was a Coloxian, half Coloxian man who had fought in their army before freeing the air. I don't like mm-hmm. part, like part of me would still have trouble buying if I wasn't on the inner circle that he was trustworthy I don't know yeah I'm kind of rambling and he came back yeah he's not he's not in good spirits he's not in good shape neither is Sora and both of them are in true both of them are struggling a little bit right now yeah Yep. So we got to regroup. Which I can't blame them. <laughs> They've, um, poor Soren has just been a prisoner for far too long. I think he's, I think he's due for some good luck now. Yeah, it is funny. What are the odds that he gets captured one more time before the end of this book? <laughs> <laughs> Pretty good, if anything we've seen before it holds true. And that part I do kind of love, again, if we're talking about, like, this damsel in distress story turned on its head. Mm-hmm. The fact that he has been the one imprisoned over and over and over again by literally every player in this game (laughs) the thing that i dislike about it though is like by all rights like as a human soren should at least have gotten angry like maybe once and every time that something happens he's just he just goes along with it like he's almost too good natured to seem realistic yeah especially given his upbringing and stuff you would think there'd be more he's a prince yeah. So I just think that's kind of funny. No, that's that's a good point. Although I also, I'm like trying to imagine, I feel like if I had been imprisoned, like at some point it's got to get old or like not as scary. Like I feel like the first time I was imprisoned, <laughs> I'd be like real, and to be fair, Crest was like probably the worst as far as like torturing him goes. But at the same time, it's like, okay, I've been stuck in a jail and been freed before <laughs> multiple times. He's like, like, I know what to expect by now. Yeah, it's temporary. I don't know. <laughs> I mean, that's not a bad point. <laughs> okay, so I feel like there's one other thing I wanted to bring up, but now I can't think of what it was. Um, what are your predictions for the next half? Okay, Blake is going to go berserker and die, saving everyone. M- Miley is going to come up with a plan that actually is useful. Cress <laughs> um, is going to meet her mother, and I believe that Cress is going to kill her mom. Because... Um, I think she might try, and- maybe she'll try and get her to drink her blood, hmm. and it'll kill her. Like, do you think they'll, she'll kill her, like, for revenge because she's still so angry? Or do you think they'll have a moment of peace, but then something else will go wrong and she'll kill her? I think they're going to have a moment of peace and Cress will be like, prove it to me by drinking this blood and prove that you want to be my ally. And her, and her mom does and it kills her. I'm really curious to see if her mom tries to save herself by telling Cress about the stuff in her blood or if she can keep her mouth shut about that. Oh, someone's going to find that out. Yeah, I'm just curious if she tells her or not because i don't know how trustworthy she is hope not yeah true that's true we really know very little about her and what do you think is going to happen with the other kings and political leaders elsewhere oh ooh, um hmm. i don't really know what's going to happen with the king Oresto. i think he's going to be very upset if his children were on board that fleet that got destroyed um he's going to also be very desperate to get that water mine since he doesn't really have it now and they pretty much liberated it so i'm not sure what that is going to drive him to do but i bet it won't be anything good yeah yeah i'm like ready for for them to go ahead and march on the capital. I want Dragonsbane to free whatever. She was at one of the other mines, right? Or she was headed to one of the other mines. I don't know 
where she went. She wasn't in this book at all. No, she she was she took the refugees and some of the injured people over to the land with the Empress. The Empress, yeah. And then she was coming back. I'm trying to remember. So we went to the water mine, we're ready for the fire mine. I think she was gonna go to the earth mine. The earth mine? Okay, yeah. Although didn't they need the air mine? Because they're the ones who can heal people. I don't remember. I I lost track of which mine they were going to because they kept changing their minds. So I was just like, well, we'll find out when we get there. Yeah, that's fair. <laughs> so I think we're going to meet up with Dragonsbane. We'll get at least one more mine free and we'll head to the capital. <laughs> I think that I agree Blaze is going to berserk in a way that kills him but helps the greater cause. I think Cress and Theo are still going to have some kind of show off where they maybe become friends for a moment, but Cress still dies. I think, I don't know, <laughs> Eric. Cress is definitely going to die. Yeah, part of me still thinks maybe she can be redeemed. But then the other part of me is like, what would she possibly do in this new future world? Slash, she's done yeah, so much harm, she can't. Po- yeah, there's no place for her. So I now I think she gets like redeemed on a personal level between her and Theo, but she still ultimately dies. That's fair. Did you do any research this week? So I did, but I was sort of all over the place. So I'm just gonna tell you some random things I learned that are mostly unconnected cool. from each other. Okay. First of all, did you know that throughout history, queens are more likely to wage war than kings? No. So I thought that was interesting because a lot of people kind of have made statements that if we had more female rulers, we'd have less war. But if you actually look at the statistics, I think it was married queens are more likely than kings either married or unmarried or unmarried queens to go to war. Like Queen Elizabeth? So Queen Elizabeth was... she waged a lot of wars. She was unmarried. So... Right. More likely to be a married queen to do this. Oh, I thought you said unmarried. Sorry, maybe I did. I meant married queens are the most likely to go to more to war. They launch oh, more wars gotcha, than gotcha. unmarried queens and kings of all types. Um, and they still think this has something to do with gender norms. So if, uh, usually when rulers married, it was some kind of alliance. So a lot of married queens were likely or to wage war with their spouse's nation. So like basically, if a queen married, even though she had control of her own troops, a lot of times she would be kind of like roped into fighting another country's wars as well for the king whereas the opposite didn't happen as often they're also supposedly unmarried queens were the ones who were like attacked the most so again this could be like some kind of gender stereotypes where people mm-hmm. viewed unmarried female rulers as like an easier target mm-hmm. I, and I guess they're also saying like queens it was hard for queens to trust people right because it's hard for leaders in general to trust people, especially if there were, like, people in your family maybe would want to be a ruler, and so if they, like, they'd also be sort of in line for for ruling and may turn on you so that they can rule, you know what I mean? Like, the people closest to you in some ways were were also the biggest threat to you, except for um, in a lot of ways, queens and husband and their husbands were the ones who could trust each other, so it tended to bring a lot of stability to a queen's rule if she was already married, which also brought in alliances and other collaborative rules which expanded her ability to organize and finance a war as well Hmm. i think there's also just fewer numbers so i don't know if it's really like fair to say like oh yes women like always go to war but i just thought that was interesting that there had been some research done and despite what people may think they have gone to war more often and so that was inspired in part, I was looking up female rulers because, again, Cress is sort of 
of the first in this group of people. They had been a patriarchal society. She's having trouble kind of maintaining her influence because they're not used to having mm-hmm. a female ruler at all. And then also she's not, right. you know, she is second marriage and it was just short-lived and blah, blah, blah. Um, so then I was also looking at some other spurned royal women who triumph over their husbands. <laughs> Ooh, nice. So Catherine the Great, I feel like we talked about her for something. I forget mm-hmm. when that was. But so she met her husband when she was a teenager and at first it was all great and then he grew old and suffered from alcoholism and mental illness and sort of became obsessed with some various things and stories say he was either like ignoring his wife or terrorizing her so um, he was like flaunting his affairs and engaging in like violence and stuff. What a jerk! Yeah so she spent a lot of the beginning times at court just kind of like observing and listening and learning about different things and when it became clear to multiple people that Peter was unfit to rule she basically like swept in and conspiring with the Orthodox Church and the Imperial Guard she led a coup taking control of the country and throwing her husband in jail and she had a very long illustrious rule I think we've talked about that somewhat so she ruled from September 1761 until her death in 1796 Good for her. And then we have Queen Isabella, the she-wolf of France, as she is known. So she married King Edward II of England when she was only 12 years old. And yeah, I know, right? And it was like from the beginning a disaster. So I guess after the wedding, there was like a... Yeah, I could have told you that. Right? There was a feast following the wedding ceremony and her husband spent like the entire time fawning over his lover, who was a nobleman, Piers Gaveston. And like jewels that were supposed to go to the new queen were given to this guy and stuff so she probably wasn't fully aware of what was happening because again she was only 12 but like the king's court in general was observing and not happy about it so he was murdered by political enemies the the lover in 1312 and then the royal couple developed some kind of like actual friendship respect for each other she had several children with him and things seemed good for a little while but then Edward acquired a new lover a different man who had like a reputation for being really brutal and so Mm. in 1325 Isabella convinced her husband to let her go home to France on a diplomatic mission and there she started like a really intense scandalous affair with his arch nemesis whoa and they raised an army and headed to England oh I love that I love that. Yeah, and so the rebellion was a success. And so in 1327, Edward II was forced to abdicate and was killed soon after. And her son, Edward III, became king, but Isabella ruled as a regent. How is there not a movie about that? I know, right? I didn't know this whole story either. That's incredible. And then she was ultimately still, I guess, like the other guy that she joined up with, the Mortimer, the arch nemesis guy from France. Uh, was also like brutal and terrible and so her son overthrew them both and Mortimer was executed and Isabella was exiled but then slowly came mm. back over to the royal family and oh good like found religion I get or like became really devout involved in religious life and charity and stuff and wow. fun fact she was buried in her wedding veil and Ooh. supposedly her murdered husband's heart was placed in her casket at her own request. So even though... Whoa. Yeah, right? <laughs> that is intense. <laughs> I know. Some of these stories were just kind of crazy. Tamara of Georgia. She ruled Georgia for 29 years. She was the only daughter of King Georgi. And in 1178, he crowned her the bright light of his eyes as co-ruler. Oh. So then he died six years later and she became...
became the sole king of Georgia and was often referred to as King Tamar. Oh, I love that. But why did they have to change her name? Couldn't she just have been King Tamara? I guess she went by both. She was also known as Tamar before. Mm. So, but then her aunt forced her to marry Prince George Yuri Bogolobuski of Kiev in 1187. That sounds terrible. And yeah, the marriage was a disaster. I feel like this line, the marriage was a disaster, follows every single <laughs> one of these stories. Um, so he was a reckless drunk with an explosive temper, a roving eye, and abusive God. tendencies. So he, I guess he publicly shamed her for not being able to get pregnant and she divorced him. Good. And remarried and gave birth to two healthy children. So what do you... Good. You need to put up with that who was the problem there but George was not happy about it so he wanted to like he had been humiliated by her so he wanted to destroy her so he led a rebel army against her but was defeated and sent into exile again good and then in 1200 George and an army of Turkish soldiers soldiers invaded Georgia again oh my god and again he was defeated um and then I guess he like disappeared from history and she was one of the greatest rulers Georgia has ever known yay oh I'm glad it had a good ending yeah but it was just funny this like this just angry ex-husband who is like terrible and just like keeps trying to invade her country and she's like nope (laughs) nope not happening give up now good for her yeah oh I like that I don't know. There's a couple other stories, but that was most of my research. And then the other thing, I'm just going to share one other fun thing. So uh, we talked about this a little bit. When Eric betrayed, quote unquote, the rest of the rebels, we found out he actually was on their side and they were passing those messages on that little fake coin thing. Oh, yeah. The stone or whatever. Yeah. So I was... Fake gold. Yeah. I was looking at different ways to pass secret messages back and forth. And I just thought... So there's a lot about like cryptology and like different ciphers and yada yada and I went to cryptography camp so I can talk about that for a long time sometime one of these days but (laughs) I just there was like this article I found that I think was like if you're like a child passing notes to your friends like unique ways to do that so for this one way you can possibly write secret messages to your friends would be to grab a ripe banana and using a toothpick write your message into the banana and then An hour or so later, it'll turn brown and reveal itself. So you could, like, write a message at your desk and then, like, hand your friend a banana and then in their next class they could read your message. That is so cool. And then you have a snack for later, it says, which I just thought. But like, this isn't like, how many bananas, what would you have to do? Like bring a bunch of bananas to school? But aren't you tempted now, like when you're in the grocery store to write messages and all the bananas? (laughs) And then the other one, and I used to do this or things like this too, would be to like white, write with a white crayon. Mm. And then like, it's hard to read it and you like give it to your friend. And if they use like a, you know, Crayola marker or a... Oh, yeah. Paint or something. Then, yeah, it will reveal the message. I like the banana. That's funny. Yeah, the banana was just, it was just such a funny, like, I had never heard that one before or thought about that. So that was funny. (laughs) And then, I don't know, I read some silly things about people who, like, I don't even know. That's, that's good enough for my research. What did you research? <laughs> yeah, that's a lot. Okay, I was inspired by these two magic substances that we have. So we have the Incatrio, in which is the fire potion, mm-hmm. and then we have this new poison that John was working on, which is called Velestra. Mm-hmm. So I looked up 10 mysterious mythical substances thought to have great power. Ooh, I like it. I won't do all 10, but there are some interesting ones here. Okay, so the first one is called Lingurium. Okay. It's 
it's a gemstone, apparently. It is essentially a gemstone that is formed from solidified lynx urine. So, um... Wait, what? There's... It's a stone that's formed of solidified lynx urine. So, urine from a lynx. That's, like, a thing that forms into a stone after many... Yeah, yes! Okay. And why a lynx? Okay, anyways, continue. I'll just listen for a minute. Okay. (laughs) Apparently, there's have been medieval texts describing this gemstone, um, and they say that it is clear yellow and has magnetic properties, and the urine of a wild lynx makes for a better stone than the urine of a tame one, and males produce a stronger stone than females, and it's really hard to find one because the lynx will bury it as soon as it's made. (laughs) But they also say that it has curative properties. So they said if, if you put the stone in liquid and then drink the liquid, it will dissolve bladder stones and cure jaundice. And some people say that all you need to do is look at this stone to be cured. Okay, I wouldn't mind looking at it. I don't really want to put it into my drink. <laughs> no, me either. I don't want to drink Link's urine. Ingest that, no. Then there are some later reading later writings that made even more outlandish claims about the stone's magical powers. So one person said that it has the power to change a person's gender entirely. Oh. Other people said that it could protect your house from harm. And they said that, (laughs) this is crazy. They said anyone who is lucky enough to find the stone should soak it in warm warm cow milk or warm sheep milk for 15 days to try and preserve it. But they said... If you try to use it for an ailment other than what it is known to cure, so if you try to use it for something besides changing your gender or bladder (laughs) stones or jaundice, um, your skull will shatter. (laughs) Oh, that would be bad. So where did this start from? Like, is there something about the links that is supposed to be magical? I think, all right, so it started from um, the works of Theophrastius of Erasus. Oh, of course. I don't know who that is. <laughs> and he was, uh, he was a man who was well known for writing about properties of gemstones and his theory on how they're formed. So this came from good old Theophrastius. This is, again, one of those, it reminds me of, like, some of the things we've talked about with, like, cures for different, just someone is like, oh, I know what'll fix that. The urine from a lynx that solidifies into a gemstone. And that people are like, yes, that makes complete sense. We're all going to start spreading that around and make up all these other rules about it. (laughs) Yeah, when it's really bananas. Okay, so the next one is ambrosia, which a lot of people know, if you know anything about Greek mythology, it's known as the food of the gods. Mm -hmm. So it's like the substance that gives them their immortality. Apparently, when gods eat ambrosia, it turns into ichor. Ichor, Ichor, which fills their veins with divine blood, and it's actually, it is the source of their immortality. But occasionally, ambrosia is also used by mortals, and in the Iliad, Patroclus wore the armor of Achilles, as many people know, and he um, was killed by Apollo. Well, he was struck down by Apollo and then killed by Hector. And there was a battle to get his body back, and there was a nymph that interfered, and she preserved um, Patroclus's body in ambrosia to keep it from decaying until Achilles could bury his lover. Hmm. Um, and so they say that when ambrosia is given to a living person, it can make them very, very beautiful. And that happens when Athena gave Penelope a taste of the divine substance. And I think it's interesting because no one's really certain what ambrosia is, even though they describe it as like the food of the gods. 
So some people claim that it's fermented honey and other people think that it's grape wine. And then even other people have said that it's actually a mushroom. Hmm. And the, the reason they got to that was because um, there's a feast that I guess the satyrs and centaurs were believed to have. And it was called the Feast of Am- the Ambrosia. And in a lot of uh, paintings where people who depict this feast show it looks like magic mushrooms that are <laughs> mixed among the, the crowd. So I don't think anyone really knows exactly what it is, but it's this like mythical substance that apparently makes you beautiful or immortal. I just love with all the theories that are, well, I mean, I guess there are some theories, but with, again, like we supposedly know what happens if you turn Link's urine into a gemstone, but we have no idea what this like magical godlike substance is. <laughs> I know. It's, who knows. Um, This one is actually really cool. So this is called The Unspoken Water of Scottish Folklore. Okay. So um, in Scottish Folklore, they say that unspoken water is a very powerful remedy for any illness, but it has to be collected in silence, um, either at dawn or dusk, and it has to be taken from water that is beneath a bridge that is used by both living people and to carry dead people. So it has to be a bridge that, like, they use to transport dead bodies, but also, like, living people walk across it, too. Okay. Very strange set of instructions. Very specific. Yes. There, yeah. So once someone brings you the unspoken water, uh, there are some people say that um, you have to drink the water, drink from the water three times before anyone says anything in your house. So, like, if you get some before a single word is spoken, you need to drink it three times. Okay. Does that mean three sips or does that mean... Yeah. Okay. And then some people also think the water should be just thrown around the house to summon its powers. And then sometimes you have to boil it um, or you have to use it to boil eggs that are then eaten for breakfast. And also without people talking in your house? Apparently. Okay. You know what I bet this was? I bet this was a ploy for our parents who like didn't want their (laughs) kids to say anything for a while. And they were just like, okay, now we're bringing in the un- the unspoken water. Uh, no one can talk or you're not going to be cured of tuberculosis. I'll only do it. We should actually sell that um, during COVID for people who are <laughs> taking care of kids at home now. <laughs> um, okay, the last one that I'm going to talk about are toadstones. Okay. So these are little shiny stones that are thought to be uh, stones from the head of a toad. This story started in the second century with the writings of Chironides. I love how they just say this like I know. I know, right? Like Chironides, no last name. He said that toads secreted a substance that formed a stone that was then stored in their heads. Gross. Okay. And ways that you could get this stone or harvest the stone was you could do the harmless way which required some patience you just had to wait for the toad to spit it out and then grab it before the toad swallows it again (laughs) or the other version um for people who were a little bit less patient and more messed up you could put the toad in a pot of flesh-eating ants and wait until the ants eat everything except the stone oh my goodness what does the stone do did you already say that no it just so they believe that the stone if you touch the stone to a person's skin it could cure them of all poisons um like snake poison insect bites um they also believed it could cure uh humoral imbalances so like if your humors were out of whack Mm -hmm. like if you don't like our dad jokes are funny (laughs) that's that's actually a really good dad joke right there (laughs) 
Check. Um, they also believe that swallowing the stone would cure a person of stomach or digestive illness ailments. Which I think is hilarious. Like, if you have a stomach problem, people thought it would be really helpful to swallow stones, and maybe that would help. Mm-hmm. But a sno- a, the stone that's left behind after the flesh-eating ants devour the rest of the toad, that stone is what you should right. swallow to fix your stomach. Mm-hmm. But the best part was they recommended that once you swallow the stone and then pass it, you should keep the stone and set it into a piece of jewelry for, for, for further protection. Oh my goodness. So could you imagine, like, someone's, you're walking down the street and someone's like, oh, I love your necklace. And you're like, oh, thank you so much. I got it from a toad that was devoured by ants. And then I swallowed it and pooped it out and then dug it out of my poop and put it in this necklace. So I guess I should be happy. Some of our listeners know I've had, like, uh, my own medical journey with some issues. So it could have been worse. They could have given me even worse advice about how to handle it. Oh, my God. Thank God we do not live in medieval times. (sighs) So that was my research. Love it. That's hilarious. <laughs> do you want a dad joke? Speaking of. Yes, I do. I think it's my turn to tell one. Okay. Always. What if one week I was just like, nah, I'm good. No, I'm good. <laughs> I'll pass. Wait, can I share a funny story that I found with you while I was doing my research that isn't really a dad joke, but given yeah. the state of the world and everything. Okay. So I think I found this on Facebook. So someone shared this story about how they trained their dog that when the dog wanted to go out, it would go and wait at the front door. But in the like little tiny puppy brain, I guess they interpreted it as go to the front door and lick it. So whenever the dog Ew. went to the door and it would just lick and it. wasn't licking it, he didn't need to go out. But if he did lick it, then Ew. they knew to let him out. Which, okay. So then they, um, they like figured it out and it was all good. But they moved. And even though oh, no. their new place only has one door that leads outside, and that's the door they always go when they take him outside for over a year, for some reason, the dog hasn't figured out that that's the outside door. And whenever he needs to go out, he'll just go to any random door in the house and start licking it. And that could be oh. the bathroom door, the bedroom door, the closet, the kitchen cabinet <laughs> door. And they're like, I don't know if he's really smart or really dumb because clearly he understands conceptually what a door is. I don't know if he yeah. thinks my closet or the kitchen cabinets lead to the outside or if he's just hoping to find Doggy Narnia or if he's just hopelessly giving up on ever being able to find the door by himself. <laughs> oh my god, that is so cute. But he doesn't do anything else to alert them except lick doors. wait and lick the door. So if they haven't seen him in a while, they have to search around the condo and yeah. see if he's licking one of the other random doors because he might be just like licking oh the linen closet because he needs to go out and they like shared a picture of this dog just like with its <laughs> tongue hanging out on the kitchen cabinet and it's just hilarious and for some reason that story brightened my day this week and I thought I would share that's really sweet okay but what's your dad joke <laughs> um okay knock knock who's there control freak control freak who you're supposed to say control freak who next <laughs> <laughs> I love knock-knock jokes <laughs> that don't let you finish the knock-knock joke. <laughs> oh, good. <laughs> Made me laugh. We've maybe already done this one, but, like, as a kid, we used to always do knock-knock. Who's there? Interrupting cow. Moo. Oh, God, I hate this one. <laughs> <laughs> or interrupting starfish, and then you'd, like, hit someone in the face with your hand. <laughs> That's new. <laughs> 
If you guys want to get in touch with us and share what to share this week. Um, if you want to share some other good knock-knock jokes, um, or if you've ever encountered a toadstone, uh, please let us know. <laughs> and you can email us at mnktalkya at gmail.com. Or on Facebook or Instagram at mnktalkya. And we're going to keep reading and finish The Ash Princess Trilogy by Laura Sebastian. Woohoo! Woohoo! Bye, bookworms! Go get a library card! M&K Talk YA is produced and edited by Marissa Snyder and Katie Bradford. Original music composition by Timothy Milkey. Logo design by Marissa Snyder. For updates and extras, visit mnktalkya.com or follow us on Instagram and Facebook. And if you haven't already, please rate, review, and subscribe on iTunes. We would like to thank James Tobias, Chad Snyder, Meredith Kelfie, and Michael Howard for all of their support. Thanks for listening, and see you next time.